John chapter 13, verses 31 to 38. Let me read the text. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. The cross of Jesus always presents a puzzle for the world. The the cross of Jesus Christ is always an enigma to to cultures and times and places. You know, in Jesus' day, uh, the cross was a theological stumbling block for Jewish people. Uh, The Hebrew Scriptures teach that if a person dies while hanging on a tree, that that person is under the curse of God. So now imagine all these Christians coming along saying, hey, guess what? The Messiah's come, and he died on a cross. It just makes no sense to Jewish theology. Or you think about the Greeks and the Gentiles in Jesus' day. Uh, You know, for them, the cross was the lowest place. It was the, the kind of execution reserved for the scummiest of the scummies. It was the execution reserved for the enemies of Rome, And so here come the Christians saying, hey, there's a king, a king of kings who's higher than Rome, and he died on a cross. And it was just logically incomprehensible to the Gentiles and to the Greeks. And the cross is also a bit of a puzzle for people today. You know, if it was a stumbling block for the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks, you know, what what is it to people today? And I suppose there's lots of ways you could answer that. I think one thing it is, is it just seems irrelevant. You know, what, what does it matter? You know, you ask a person today, a modern person, so what do you think the reason is that Jesus died on the cross? And they might scratch their heads and try to give you an answer, but I bet if they're being honest, they, they might think, who cares? It's just sort of an irrelevant question. It's kind of like an episode of the History Channel. Interesting, maybe. You know, kind of uh, something to think about, a curiosity, but really, that's not relevant. You, you know, what's relevant? Let's talk about something relevant. Let's talk about politics. Well, let's talk about investment. Where are you going to put your money these days so that it doesn't get, you know, obliterated in, in, in a difficult financial market? Or, you know, let's talk about uh, parenting teenagers. That's relevant. Or let's talk about something really relevant to me. iPad or iPad mini? You know, iPad or iPad mini? Like, where, which, which would I go? I'm trying to decide. Those are relevant issues. But why did Jesus die on the cross 2,000 years ago? I mean, that's kind of interesting, but what does it have to do with anything? So for us, the cross seems, or for the world, the cross seems kind of irrelevant. But then you walk into a church, and they're talking about the cross, hopefully. (laughs) 
singing songs about the cross, you know, this the power of the cross. We're sitting here singing an anthem about the cross. Uh, We're enacting and dramatizing the cross uh, through communion and through baptism. It's it's sort of being uh, symbolized and dramatized together as a community. Uh, Most Christian buildings where Christians gather for worship uh, typically have crosses on the wall somewhere. It's not uncommon to see that. So you step into the life of a local church, and the cross is not irrelevant or foolishness or, or offensive. It's actually kind of central to who we are and what we proclaim. And, and so there's this big disconnect between inside a community of believers and outside of it. Why the cross? Why the obsession with the cross? You know, you know why are you Christians so into this thing? It just seems so irrelevant. Why don't you do something relevant with your lives? Hey, you Christians, look, you get together every Sunday for an hour or two hours or three hours on a Sunday morning. You carve out all this time. Why don't you do something useful? Like how about every other Sunday you cancel church and go out in the community and pick up litter or go out in the community and fix up a playground? Like that would actually help people. That would actually do something to contribute to society. Why, why all this focus on Jesus and him crucified for us? And yet when you look at the text that I just read here on the eve of the cross in John 13, that is the focus. You know, Jesus says in verse 31, now the Son of Man is glorified. So Jesus is saying, you know, the cross is about to happen. This is the glory moment. This is the, this is the high point, the cross. So in many ways, the Christian focus on the cross is really following Jesus's focus on the centrality of the cross. Why, you know, why did Jesus say that? Maybe it'd be good just for a minute to kind of put this line of inquiry on pause and just c- quickly remember where we are in John chapter 13, because we haven't been studying John for about three Sundays now. We had the missions conference. Maybe you can remember what I was talking about three Sundays ago. I can't remember what I was talking about three Sundays ago. I can't remember what I was talking about yesterday. So um, the, just to remind ourselves about John, John uh, chapters 13 to 17 is a segment of Scripture where Jesus at the Last Supper is teaching the disciples, uh, getting them ready for his death on the cross. He's, he's kind of like prepping them, getting them focused. So, you know, the tone of John 13 to 17, it's really wonderful. It's very intimate. It's very personal. It's very encouraging. It's just like Jesus, disciples, encouragement. And so it's kind of a beloved portion of Scripture. And already here in, in chapter 13, some really crazy things have happened. Jesus washed all their feet. That was weird. He goes around washing the disciples' feet. That kind of messed with their heads. And then Judas goes out to betray Jesus. You know, Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And they're like, what? Who's going to betray you? And, and you know, if you look, look at verse uh, 27, you know, Jesus says, the guy who I give this piece of bread to is going to betray me. And he gives it to Judas. And so verse 27, as soon as Judas took the bread Satan entered into him. What you're about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Jesus had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or give him something or to give something to the poor. And as soon as Jesus, Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. So you get this very ominous note. This kind of minor key, it was night. Bum, bum. <laughs> Very dark. And why is it so dark? Because with Judas walking out the door, 
the chain of events that leads to the crucifixion of Jesus has now been set in motion. As Judas walks out that door, it's as if the first domino has just been tapped over, and now that domino hits other dominoes that have a chain reaction that ultimately bring us to the cross. It's like with Judas going out the door, the first stone is thrown that dislodges the other stones, that creates a whole avalanche, that finally buries Jesus behind a stone in this avalanche that leads to the cross. So it's all set in motion. And it's at that moment that Jesus says in verse 31, when he was gone, when Judas was underway, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified. So as Jesus looks at the cross, which is now in motion, he's not saying, oh, this is so secondary, this is so irrelevant. He's saying, this is the glory moment. This is the high point. This is when I'm going to be glorified, when God is going to be glorified in me, sort of through what I'm doing, and when God is going to respond by glorifying me. So all this, this big glory party between the Father and the Son. All at the cross. Jesus did so many awesome things to show God's glory. He fed hungry people. He healed sick people. He taught spiritually clueless people. He raised dead people. I mean, it's amazing. And yet, despite all of that amazing ministry that Jesus did to show God's glory, it's as if all that's kind of behind him and he's saying, no, 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 now you will see the glory of God. This is the glory moment now that he is gone and the cross has begun. And so, again, there's that question. Why is it so central? It's central to Christians and it was central to Jesus. He, he saw this as the apex of his life and ministry. So as you look at the rest of this section, verses 33 to 38, and we ask the question, why this focus on the cross, especially for us as Christians, I think t- at least two answers emerge from these following verses. There's at least two reasons we can see there that, that the cross is so central that Jesus would call it the moment of glory. And if you look at the text, here's reason number one. It's in verses 33 to 35. Reason number one is that the cross has now become the gold standard for how we're supposed to love one another. That the cross becomes like the new bar that's been set. This is the new definition of what love looks like. That with the cross of Jesus, we have a new model and a new example of how Christians are supposed to care for each other and love one another. So whenever we look at the cross, we see a, we see a bar. We see a gold standard. We say, there's love epitomized for us as Christians. You know, look back at the text, verse 33. Jesus breaks the news again that he's going. My children, I'll, not, I'll only be with you a little longer. You'll look for me. As I told the Jews where I'm going, you cannot come. And then he gives them the command. A new command I give you, love one another. I, you know, this is totally random, but when I was reading this, I, I kind of, my parental lenses came into play. And I was like, this is like what I tell my kids when I go out with my wife for the evening. You know, they got a babysitter. Well, now they're old enough to babysit themselves. They're teenagers. And, you know, I'm always, uh, my oldest was a teenager. So it's like, hey, look, mom and I are going away. You can't come. Um, love one another. Like, don't fight. <laughs> don't kill each other, you know. Be nice to each other. 
And we want to come back and know that you weren't fighting. And you just, I, I don't know, the, the little parental sort of lens here. Hey, guys, I'm leaving. You can't come with me. Love one another, okay? Love one another while I'm gone, please. But it doesn't just say love one another. Look at verse 34. This is curious. A new command I give you, love one another. So this is a new command. And, and it raises the question, in what sense is it new? You know, I was, I was kind of thinking about that. I'm like, is that really new, the idea of loving each other? Well, you look at the Old Testament, and God commanded the Israelites to love one another. You know, you look at Leviticus chapter 19, and uh, there's the second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. So God's commanded his people to love each other before. And it's not even like love is a concept that only Christians get. You know, people who don't believe the Bible or aren't from a Judeo-Christian value system understand, at least at some level, the concept of love. Um, and so, so it's not really new. So you kind of scratch your head and you go, what sense is it new? What's the new command here? And it's right there in the next sentence. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. So what's new is not the concept of love per se, but the definition and the depth and the intensity of love. That's the new thing. Is the new bar that's been set is no longer you know, the love between a husband and a wife maybe or the love of a parent and child. The new bar of love is Jesus' love for us demonstrated on the cross that he's about to, to undergo. Because you know what he says here? He goes, love one another as I have loved you. Well, how has he loved the disciples? Well, you know, you go back to verse 1 of chapter 13, right before the foot washing. Remember this? Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. So Jesus' love for them is demonstrated in the foot washing as he takes the form of a servant and puts a towel around his waist and washes their feet. But if you, do you guys remember? you guys remember from chapter 13 when we studied that foot washing? That the foot washing itself was a symbol of something else? It was a foot washing, it was a symbol of the cross. So just as Jesus humbles himself and washes the dirt off their feet, that's not the full extent of his love. The full extent of his love was what that pointed to when in just a few hours he would take the form of a servant, be stripped bare, and he would wash their sins with his blood on the cross. So, so embedded in all this is the cross. It's in view. It's in focus. It's being predicted and demonstrated and foretold through all of these actions. So that's what's different. That's what's new is that love has been redefined, that the bar has been set now, and it's the bar of the cross. Total self-sacrifice as Christ gave himself for us. And so that's one of the reasons we love the cross as Christians. That's one of the reasons we focus on it. Because when we see the cross, hopefully we're seeing this is how we should love one another. And and that's huge because, like I said, it it kind of redefines love for us. You know, our world talks about love. Like we said, uh, love is not an exclusively Christian concept. We, We get that couples are supposed to love each other. You know, we have love songs on the radio. You can go watch love movies, you know, there's always the, the uh, eternal battle between the chick flick and the dude flick, and, you know, which movie do you watch, and, you know, is, is it a love story, or is it about guys blowing things up, you know, there's always this battle about which movie to watch, so, so we have these movies out there that kind of 
valorize love and romantic love between couples. There's the love between parents and children. And so we have these concepts of love. And yet, I'd like to argue that when you actually look at how the world works, there's a lot less love in the world than we would kind of like to pretend there is. Or there's a lot less love in our own hearts. You know, you look at the world and yeah, there's, there's movies about love and songs about love and talk about love. But like, where, where is love in the world? There's a lot of selfishness in the world. There's a lot of conflict and war. There's a lot of divisions. There's inter-office nasty politics. You know, where's the love? It's definitely not on the Massachusetts freeway system, I'll, I'll tell you that. Um, wow. Sometimes it's not even in, in the places you'd think it would be, the obvious places. You know, we talk about romantic love between couples, but let's face it, there's a lot of conflict between couples. There's a lot of brokenness and tension. Even in, in what we might say healthy, intact marriages, happy marriages, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of work and a lot of sacrifice. I, I didn't realize how selfish I really was till I got married. And then it became obvious, like, wow, I, I really, I'm more selfish than I thought I was. And it's, it's very challenging, even in, a, in an intact marriage, to keep that going. Um, even between parents and children, we say, oh, that's love. Parents and children. There's so much love in the world between parents and children. There's a lot of brokenness between parents and children. There's a lot of tension between moms and sons and dads and daughters. You know, um, I, I was, uh, this weekend, yesterday, I spent 10 hours at a swim meet driving back and forth. My son is a swimmer. And if you, any of your kids have ever done swimming, you know, swimming is like, it's a huge time commitment on a Saturday. So, uh, you know, you go for 10 hours and you watch five minutes worth of races. It's awesome. So, um, <laughs> but it's good if you have a good book. So, uh, yeah, yeah, but we're at the swim meet and there was this, this little guy, like this big, this little, little kid, and uh, his dad was there and, and this kid had somehow missed his event, which is easy to do, especially if you're young. It's just the swim event scene is really crazy. And if you don't have someone kind of holding your hand, you can miss an event. And this kid missed the event. And I'm telling you what, this dad, like in front of everybody, was roaring at his son. Like, wah! You know? And it was like, everyone was freaking out. And he did it again because it's done Smith's event. And you just see this poor little heart, you know? Just the tears and the shame and the humiliation as this dad was just flipping out, going nuclear on his son. You know, you're just like, wow. What goes on behind closed doors, you know? And, and so everyone, you know, all the parents are like, can you believe that? I can't believe that. You know, and there's all this stuff going on and, you know, causing, and people are going and reporting it to the coach and all this stuff. And what a bad dad. What a terrible dad. But then, you know, you, and you feel that way, but then you look at your own parenting, if you're a parent, and you go, have I ever lost it on my kids? <sighs> you know? Have I, have I ever regretted anything I've said or done or ways when they wanted my attention and I was too busy with stupid things? You know, it's like I try not to make the mistakes my parents made, <laughs> and then I make them anyway. Or I don't make those mistakes, but I make up my own. <laughs> Brand new ones. Kids grow up with a negative caricature of their parents. Parents try their hardest, and kids grow up ungrateful. And like, where's the love in the world? I'm so glad the election's over. It's like the acrimony in our country. 
Like people can't even talk to each other. You know what, I don't care what your politics are. It's like we can't even talk to each other as human beings because of this election. Like we've become so politicized. Everything is politicized in our culture. It's like, you know, there's no way to interact in public without the lens of politics. It's messed up. Where's the love? Where do we really experience love? So it makes it all more than remarkable that in chapter 13, Jesus is saying, love one another. Here's the gold standard, me on the cross for you. That's how it should look. And he's not saying this to husbands and wives or a dating couple or parents and kids, but he's saying this to a group of strangers who've been brought together as a band of disciples. The disciples were not all blood relatives. They were not like a little gang of buddies that Jesus called. You know, some of them related, but a lot of them were strangers. Jesus said, you, you're going to follow me, and you'll follow me, and you're going to follow me, and you too. And so we got the tax collector and the four fishermen, and we got the, the political extremist, and you're all going to be my disciples now. So love one another. Be a family. And it's like, wow, that is extreme. It's so extreme. And don't just love one another. Like, love one another as I have loved you. The bar is set so high. It, it's an incredible vision. So it's like, like I, I need to love you, not just people at large, but I need to love you in this church sacrificially the way that God loved us in Christ. That can be a challenge. It can be a challenge for us New Englanders. We love things as New Englanders. We love privacy. We love frugality. We love efficiency. Getting her done in a timely way without you know, getting things accomplished. We love those things. I wasn't raised in New England, but I think maybe I was stolen here at birth because I fit right in here. This, this place makes sense. Privacy, frugality, efficiency. I love it. It fits my personality. Um, and those aren't necessarily bad values. I think privacy can be a really wise thing. You know, sometimes people spill everything to everyone. It's really not appropriate, not helpful. And frugality, we're certainly not supposed to be wasteful with money. And efficiency, it's, it's good to make your life you know, focused on a goal and to accomplish things with your life. But what I'm saying is, if we are going to love one another the way that is being talked about here, it's going to have to violate some privacy. Because you can't love one another if you don't know. That's what I'm saying. And if we're going to really love one another, it might actually cost a little money. Sometimes you have to sacrifice goods. And if we're going to love one another, that might actually take some of our time, which I think is perhaps the hardest sacrifice of all, given how little time any of us feel like we have. But it takes a sacrifice of time to truly love one another. That's tough. I was uh, really, one of the things that touched me from the missions conference, you know, Amy was up here a few minutes ago sharing about what blessed her for the missions conference. I had a number of takeaways. But one of mine was, uh, there was a Thursday night meeting I think last week, and one of our missionaries named Bob Sabian was sharing. And Bob is a missionary who was supported for a long time. He works in uh, Central America, and what he does is uh, uh, runs Christian camps and teaches Central American Christians how to run Christian camps to, to sort of share the gospel and do discipleship. And, and he kept talking about this conversion experience he had on the mission field after 10, 12 years. 
And I'm like, what? Conversion experience? Wait, you became a Christian after you were a missionary? Like, what? But I found out what he was talking about. He wasn't talking about being, going from not a Christian to a Christian. He, he, he put it this way. He said, you know, I was raised in New England. He says, I'm very task-oriented. And it took me 10 or 12 years of living in Central America to be converted to being people-oriented, to really loving people and to really tuning into people and to, and to say, you know, if it doesn't all get done, that's okay. Because people is the work that we're called to as Christians to love people. I was just really convicted by that because, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm task-oriented. I, I see, I get that whole thing. So I've been praying that I'd be converted. You can pray for my conversion. I'll pray for yours. It's, uh, it's challenging. But this is what Christ calls us to. It's not a suggestion. It's the new command. Love one another. I, mean, I, I don't know. Do you, can you like pull up any names in your mind, any faces in your mind of people that God has kind of plopped right in front of your front door of your life and said, here's a person who needs a little help financially or here's a person who needs a note of encouragement or here's someone who just needs somebody to stop and take 20 minutes and listen to them. You know, uh, this week, uh, actually a couple weeks ago now, I was talking to someone in the church and, and the person just looked at me and said, hey, Jeremy, how are you doing? You know, and it was kind of freaky because I think he actually meant it. So I was like, oh, that's different. So I was like, you know, and, and he said, look, I know your dad, you know, has cancer and that battle's going on. He goes, I know you got busy with your family and I know the church has a lot of responsibility. How are you doing? And then just be quiet and listen. That's a real gift when someone does that for you. Because normally it's like, how are you doing? You're good? You're good? We're good? Okay, we're all good. All right, great. Got things to do. Here we go. I'm accomplished. I got a lot done. I had a good day. Um, but to stop and say, how are you? Like, I, you know, how do we love each other as a church? Like, that's first base right there. It's just stopping enough to say to one person. Obviously, you can't say it to everyone in this room. But, you know, someone you know that God's put in your life. How are you? And actually mean it and listen. It's challenging. So here's a question. What would it be like if a church was really like that? If we were growing in loving each other, a bunch of strangers brought together by the gospel, united not by socioeconomic status, united not by nationality, united not by politics, united not by family ties, but united in Christ, brought together because of the gospel, and we really loved each other as we got to know each other, and we were practicing cross love. We were practicing crucified love of self-sacrifice. What would that be like? I, I think it would freak the world out in a good way. Like Jesus says, by this all men will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Man, what's going on in your church? People are—they love each other there. It seems like you're like a one big family. Why is that? Well, it's the cross. And all of a sudden, the cross is not irrelevant. It's actually speaking to something that I think deep down, even the furthest person from God knows deep in their heart, there is a yearning for true love, for real love, real community, real belonging. It's deep in our souls. We can't make it go away. Because God put it there. God put it there. So we love the cross. 
we preach the cross, we sing the cross, because hopefully every time I'm singing it and thinking about it, I'm seeing this is how I should love others. This is how the church should be. And yet, and yet, we don't always experience that among the people of God in local churches, do we? A lot of times, we've, some of us experience just the opposite in local churches. Some people are kind of hands off on the church because rather than cross love and self-sacrificial community, it, it, instead of even experiencing a little bit of that, what we've experienced is gossip and politics and camps and factions all wanting things their way and power games and, you know, that kind of junk that, that pe- makes people just go like, where's the eject button? I'm out of here. This is not what I signed up for. And when that happens in churches, it just is really discouraging. You go into a church and you kind of expect somewhere in your mind that it's going to be filled up with little Jesuses. And what you find is the church is actually filled up and pastored by Peter's. Look at verse 36. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? So I guess Peter couldn't even get to the loved one another part. He's still back on him going away. Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, yeah, love. What, what, you're going somewhere? Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter will not be denied. You can't tell Peter no. Jesus can't even tell Peter no. So Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you? I will lay down my life for you. Heroic Peter. He's got such a huge heart. And what's kind of ironic is that that declaration, I will lay down my life to you, is actually the kind of love that Jesus was just talking about, right? So he was talking about the way I've loved you, which is that he's going to lay down his life. So I don't know how much, how aware Peter was of what he was saying and how much he could figure out about the future, but he was basically declaring the kind of love that Jesus was just commanding them to have. So it's kind of cool. I'll lay down my life for you. And you think, oh, good. That's what Jesus was just talking about, laying down your life kind of love. And that's when Jesus drops the bomb on Peter. He says, will you really? It's like people say today, really? Really? You're going to lay down your life for me? Now, let me tell you what's actually going to happen, Peter. I tell you the truth. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. It's late, Peter, but before your alarm clock goes off this morning, you're going to have dissed me three times. You think you're going to give your life for me, but actually you're going to throw me under the bus to save your own skin three times. You think that's the kind of love you have, but it's going to be the opposite. It's going to be a profound selfishness. As I read that, I was just thinking, you know, how many times in my life have I had great intentions But when the moment of testing comes, I'm a train wreck. You know, you go to a conference, a women's conference, a men's conference. Kids go to a youth retreat. You get great speakers and you get all fired up and like, oh yeah, I'm going to make some changes. And it's like by the from somehow from the time I leave the retreat till I walk in my front door, all that all that resolve has kind of just started evaporating. I don't know where it went. It's so frustrating. I'm going to be a better husband. I'm going to love my wife when I get home. Yeah, that was awesome talk. And I get home and I walk in the door. I'm home. And, you know, and, and, and your wife's like, thank goodness I've had the kids all weekend while you've been at your retreat. 
Well, sorry that I wanted to love God better. And oh, geez, I failed. (laughs) The test comes. The moment comes. And all my best intentions just seem to go out the door. Maybe right now, like you're hearing this sermon and and the word of God is affecting you. And you're thinking, woo, I do want to love like that. That's resonating. The Holy Spirit's speaking to me. Maybe the Holy Spirit's bringing names up before you. And you're like, right, after I get out of here, I got three emails to send of people that I need to love. And, you know, and, and what if like two weeks from now, you're going, oh, I totally forgot. It just happens. And so it's so frustrating that the, the bar is Jesus, but the reality is Peter. I look at Jesus and I'm looking at a poster. That's what I want to be. And I look at Peter and I'm looking at a mirror. That's who I am. And that's, it's difficult. There's Peter. This, is the, this guy's going to be the, the leader of the church. That, the leader of the church is a guy who disowns him. I mean, if a politician running for office had flip-flopped like that, Think of the attack ads you could do. And yet, Peter becomes the leader of the church, even though he disowns Jesus three times. October surprise. I was with Jesus or with Peter around the fire. He disowned it, you know, all over the news. You could just see it. And there's Peter. I see that that's, that's us. And you know, you've got to look in that mirror, you've got to realize that. Yes, we're called to love, and yet we fail so much. And, and you can't look away from that mirror because it's only as you gaze honestly at the mirror of moral failure and love failure that you're able to see the second reason that we love the cross. It's because, number one, the cross is our example But when I try to live by that example, I fall short. So the second reason I love the cross is that the cross is not just my example. The cross is my salvation and my forgiveness and my grace. Because Jesus died on the cross not just to kind of be a role model. That's not enough. Jesus died on the cross to actually bear the punishment for the sins that I deserve to be judged for by God. You know, Peter says, I will die for you, Jesus. And Jesus is like, no, you're going to deny me. I'm going to die for you. Because someone's got to die for those sins. God is holy. God doesn't just wink at sin. Forgiveness is costly. You know, that's one of the ways we're supposed to love one another is forgive one another. You know, in some ways it's easier to give someone a, you know, a meal card who's a little hungry. I'll tell you, a hard thing to do is to forgive somebody. Forgiveness is costly. When you forgive somebody, you don't just say, ah, it's no big deal, we'll just forgive it. It takes sacrifice. You have to give up something to forgive somebody. And God gave up his only son to forgive us, to to pay that, that debt. God is a holy God. He hates sin. He always judges sin as well he should. People say, if if there's a God, why is there so much evil in the world? And the answer is, just wait, God hasn't settled everything yet. Someday he will settle everything. And on that day, you need Jesus. <laughs> you need a savior. You don't just need a role model. A role model is just going to damn you more. You need a savior. You need someone who bore the punishment for your sins. And so we love the cross because it's not only the role model, but it's where Jesus died for deniers. 
and Jesus died for liars, and Jesus died for adulterers, and Jesus died for abusers, and he died for angry dads, and he died for um, uh, aborters, and he died for hypocrites. (laughs) He died for our sins. So we love the cross because it's not just the model, but it's like the, the life raft in the sea of judgment. It's the one thing we can cling to and have hope of being reconciled to our Creator. We love it. You know, people sometimes say, uh, oh, I, a guy said this to me on the plane a couple weeks ago when I was flying out to Portland. I was, we got in a conversation. He found out I was a pastor. And so he said, you know, well, all religions are basically the same. They all just teach you, they all teach the same thing at their core. It's, you know, be, be good and, and love people. And, you know, when people say that, I'm always like, I don't think you've actually studied many religions. Because that's not the core message of, you know. But, you know, you think of like, what other, what other person teaches this kind of love and who died for sinners? You know, that's not the core message of Islam. That's not the core message of Buddhism. That's not the core message of atheism. It's just not there philosophically that the grounds for this kind of self-sacrificial forgiveness. What other religion teaches that the king of glory died to bear the just punishment of the insurgents? It's unheard of. People don't do that. It doesn't make any sense in the world. But this is where the glory of God is displayed. And so just to kind of wrap this up, full circle, verses 31 and 32. Now do you see why this is the moment when Jesus was glorified? When the awesomeness of God and the wonder and majesty of God is most clearly put on display for the world to see? You can look up at the stars at night and see the glory of God. You can climb up to the top of Mount Washington on a clear day and look out over the White Mountains and you'll see the glory of God reflected there. But it is a dim reflection compared to God loving sinners so much that he would send his only son to rescue his enemies. It's unheard of. It is amazing love. It is the glory of God to the uttermost. And that's why we're just kind of stuck there. That's why we can't really get past the cross, but instead we're seeing our whole lives differently through the cross. The cross is not just something we believe in. It's the whole lens for interpreting our reality and our relationships as Christians. And we look beyond the cross and we see what? An empty tomb. That not only did Jesus die for our sins, but he rose again. And so there's now power in Christ not only to be forgiven, but to start by his power, not ours, by his power, to start living the kind of loving life that we know we should live, but we can't live just by trying. It's through his Holy Spirit and his resurrection power in the life of forgiven sinners. What do you see when you look at the cross? A piece of art? Two intersecting lines at a 90 90 degree angles? What do you see? Do you see... An example, do you see a mysterious religious symbol? Do you see jewelry? What do you see? Or do you see the most mind-boggling love ever displayed that God would give his only son for sinners like us? Let's pray.
Oh, Father, we pray that you would show us your glory. Jesus, show us your glory in the cross. Help us to see your holiness, your love, your majesty. And God, I pray that you would help us as a church to really love each other sacrificially. I feel like we haven't even begun to love. There's so much more love to to do and to commit to each other. Lord, I pray um, that you would help us to love the world, love people around us. And God, I pray anyone here who's questioning, who's searching, who's skeptical, who has unresolved doubts, Lord, I pray, Jesus, that they would see you, that they would fix their hope not on rationality and their own ability to reason things out. They'd fix, not fix their hope on a pastor or on a church, but that they would see the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised, and they would put their hope in him. And so, Lord, do your work, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.